Section 8 of Chapter 24 of History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 24, Section 8. Porto Carrero was one of a race of men of whom we, happily for us, have seen very little, but whose influence has been the curse of Roman Catholic countries. He was, like Sixtus the Fourth and Alexander the Sixth, a politician made out of an impious priest. Such politicians are generally worse than the worst of the laity, more merciless than any ruffian that can be found in camps, more dishonest than any pettifogger who haunts the tribunals. The sanctity of their profession has an unsanctifying influence on them. The lessons of the nursery, the habits of boyhood and of early youth, leave in the minds of the great majority of avowed infidels some traces of religion which, in seasons of mourning and of sickness, become plainly discernible. But it is scarcely possible that any such trace should remain in the mind of the hypocrite who, during many years, is constantly going through what he considers as the mummery of preaching, saying mass, baptizing, shriving. When an ecclesiastic of this sort mixes in the contests of men of the world, he is indeed much to be dreaded as an enemy, but still more to be dreaded as an ally. From the pulpit where he daily employs his eloquence to embellish what he regards as fables, from the altar whence he daily looks down with the secret scorn on the prostrate dupes who believe that he can turn a drop of wine into blood, from the confessional where he daily studies with cold and scientific attention the morbid anatomy of guilty consciences, he brings to courts some talents which may move the envy of the more cunning and unscrupulous of lay courtiers. A rare skill in reading characters and in managing tempers, a rare art of dissimulation, a rare dexterity in insinuating what it is not safe to affirm or to propose in explicit terms. There are two feelings which often prevent an unprincipled layman from becoming utterly depraved and despicable, domestic feeling and chivalrous feeling, his heart may be softened by the endearments of a family. His pride may revolt from the thought of doing what does not become a gentleman. But neither with the domestic feeling nor with the chivalrous feeling has the wicked priest any sympathy. His gown excludes him from the closest and most tender of human relations, and at the same time dispenses him from the observation of the fashionable code of honor. Such a priest was Porto Carrero, and he seems to have been a consummate master of his craft. To the name of statesman he had no pretensions. The lofty part of his predecessor Jimenez was out of the range, not more of his intellectual than his moral capacity. To reanimate a paralyzed and torpid monarchy, to introduce order and economy into a bankrupt treasury, to restore the discipline of an army which had become a mob, to refit a navy which was perishing from mere rottenness, these were achievements beyond the power, beyond even the ambition of that ignoble nature. But there was one task for which the new minister was admirably qualified, that of establishing, by means of superstitious terror, an absolute dominion over a feeble mind, and the feeblest of all minds was that of his unhappy sovereign. Even before the riot which had made the cardinal supreme in the state, he had succeeded in introducing into the palace a new confessor selected by himself. In a very short time the king's malady took a new form. That he was too weak to lift his food to his misshapen mouth, that, at thirty-seven, he had the bald head and wrinkled face of a man of seventy, that his complexion was turning from yellow to green, that he frequently fell down in fits and remained long insensible, these were no longer the worst symptoms of his malady. 
he had always been afraid of ghosts and demons and it had long been necessary that three friars should watch every night by his restless bed as a guard against hobgoblins but now he was firmly convinced that he was bewitched that he was possessed that there was a devil within him that there were devils all around him he was exercised according to the forms of his church but this ceremony instead of quieting him scared him out of almost all the little reason that nature had given him in his misery and despair he was induced to resort to irregular modes of relief his confessor brought to court impostors who pretended that they could interrogate the powers of darkness the devil was called up sworn and examined the strange deponement made oath as in the presence of god that his catholic majesty was under a spell which had been laid on him many years before for the purpose of preventing the continuation of the royal line a drug had been compounded out of the brains and kidneys of a human corpse and had been administered in a cup of chocolate this potion had dried up all the sources of life and the best remedy to which the patient could now resort would be to swallow a bowl of consecrated oil every morning before breakfast unhappily the authors of the story fell into contradictions which they could excuse only by throwing the blame on satan who they said was an unwilling witness and a liar from the beginning in the midst of their conjuring the inquisition came down upon them it must be admitted that if the holy office had reserved all its terrors for such cases it would not now have been remembered as the most hateful judicature that was ever known among civilized men the subaltern impostors were thrown into dungeons but the chief criminal continued to be master of the king and of the kingdom meanwhile in the distempered mind of charles one mania succeeded another a longing to pry into those mysteries of the grave from which human beings avert their thoughts had long been hereditary in his house juana from whom the mental constitution of her posterity seems to have derived a morbid taint had sate year after year by the bed on which lay the ghastly remains of her husband apparelled in the rich embroidery and jewels which he had been wont to wear while living her son charles found an eccentric pleasure in celebrating his own obsequies in putting on his shroud placing himself in the coffin covering himself with the pall and lying as one dead till the requiem had been sung and the mourners had departed leaving him alone in the tomb philip the second found a similar pleasure in gazing on the huge chest of bronze in which his remains were to be laid and especially on the skull which encircled with the crown of spain grinned at him from the cover philip the fourth too hankered after burials and burial places gratified his curiosity by gazing on the remains of his great-grandfather the emperor and sometimes stretched himself out at full length like a corpse in the niche which he had selected for himself in the royal cemetery to that cemetery his son was now attracted by a strange fascination europe could show no more magnificent place of sepulture a staircase encrusted with jasper led down from the stately church of the escurial into an octagon situated just beneath the high altar the vault impervious to the sun was rich with gold and precious marbles which reflected the blaze from a huge chandelier of silver on the right and on the left reposed each in a massy sarcophagus the departed kings and queens of spain into this mausoleum the king descended with a long train of courtiers and ordered the coffins to be unclosed his mother had been embalmed with such consummate skill that she appeared as she had appeared on her deathbed. the body of his grandfather too seemed entire but crumbled into dust at the first touch from charles neither the remains of his mother nor those of his grandfather could draw any sign of sensibility but when the gentle and graceful louise of orleans the miserable man's first wife she who had lighted up his dark existence with one short and pale gleam of happiness presented herself after the lapse of ten years to his eyes his sullen apathy gave way she is in heaven he cried and i shall soon be there with her 
and with all the speed of which his limbs were capable, he tottered back to the upper air. Such was the state of the court of Spain when, in the autumn of 1699, it became known that, since the death of the electoral prince of Bavaria, the governments of France, of England, and of the United Provinces were busily engaged in framing a second treaty of partition. That Castilians would be indignant at learning that any foreign potentate meditated the dismemberment of that empire of which Castile was the head might have been foreseen but it was less easy to foresee that William would be the chief and indeed almost the only object of their indignation. If the meditated partition really was unjustifiable, there could be no doubt that Lewis was far more to blame than William, for it was by Lewis and not by William that the partition had been originally suggested, and it was Lewis, and not William, who was to gain an accession of territory by the partition. Nobody could doubt that William would most gladly have acceded to any arrangement by which the Spanish monarchy could be preserved entire without danger to the liberties of Europe, and that he had agreed to the division of that monarchy solely for the purpose of contenting Lewis. Nevertheless, the Spanish ministers carefully avoided whatever could give offence to Lewis, and indemnified themselves by offering a gross indignity to William. The truth is that their pride had, as extravagant pride often has, a close affinity with meanness. They knew that it was unsafe to insult Lewis, and they believed that they might with perfect safety insult William. Lewis was absolute master of his large kingdom. He had at no great distance armies and fleets which one word from him would put in motion. If he were provoked, the white flag might in a few days be again flying on the walls of Barcelona. His immense power was contemplated by the Castilians with hope as well as with fear. He and he alone, they imagined, could avert that dismemberment of which they could not bear to think. Perhaps he might yet be induced to violate the engagements into which he had entered with England and Holland, if one of his grandsons were named successor to the Spanish throne. He, therefore, must be respected and courted. But William could at that moment do little to hurt or to help. He could hardly be said to have an army. He could take no step which would require an outlay of money without the sanction of the House of Commons, and it seemed to be the chief study of the House of Commons to cross him and to humble him. The history of the late session was known to the Spaniards principally by inaccurate reports brought by Irish friars, and had those reports been accurate, the real nature of a parliamentary struggle between the court party and the country party could have been but very imperfectly understood by the magnates of a realm in which there had not, during several generations, been any constitutional opposition to the royal pleasure. At one time it was generally believed at Madrid, not by the mere rabble, but by grandees who had the envied privilege of going in coaches and four through the streets of the capital, that William had been deposed, that he had retired to Holland, that the Parliament had resolved that there should be no more kings, that a commonwealth had been proclaimed, and that the doge was about to be appointed, and, though this rumour turned out to be false, it was but too true that the English government was, just at that conjuncture, in no condition to resent slights. Accordingly, the Marquis of Canales, who represented the Catholic king at Westminster, received instructions to remonstrate in strong language, and was not afraid to go beyond these instructions. He delivered to the Secretary of State a note abusive and impertinent beyond all example and all endurance. His master, he wrote, had learnt with amazement that King William, Holland, and other powers, for the ambassador, prudent even in his blustering, did not choose to name the King of France, were engaged in framing a treaty not only for settling the succession to the spanish crown but for the detestable purpose of dividing the spanish monarchy the whole scheme was vehemently condemned as contrary to the law of nature and to the law of god 
the ambassador appealed from the king of england to the parliament to the nobility and to the whole nation and concluded by giving notice that he should lay the whole case before the two houses when next they met the style of this paper shows how strong an impression had been made on foreign nations by the unfortunate events of the late session the king it was plain was no longer considered as the head of the government he was charged with having committed a wrong but he was not asked to make reparation he was treated as a subordinate officer who had been guilty of an offence against public law and was threatened with the displeasure of the commons who as the real rulers of the state were bound to keep their servants in order the lord justices read this outrageous note with indignation and sent it with all speed to loo thence they received with equal speed directions to send canales out of the country our ambassador was at the same time recalled from madrid and all diplomatic intercourse between england and spain was suspended it is probable that canales would have expressed himself in a less unbecoming manner had there not already existed a most unfortunate quarrel between spain and william a quarrel in which william was perfectly blameless but in which the unanimous feeling of the english parliament and of the english nation was on the side of spain it is necessary to go back some years for the purpose of tracing the origin and progress of this quarrel few portions of our history are more interesting or instructive but few have been more obscured and distorted by passion and prejudice the story is an exciting one and it has generally been told by writers whose judgment has been perverted by strong national partiality their incentives and lamentations have still to be temperately examined and it may well be doubted whether even now after the lapse of more than a century and a half feelings hardly compatible with temperate examination will not be stirred up in many minds by the name of darien in truth that name is associated with calamities so cruel that the recollection of them may not unnaturally disturb the equipoise even of a fair and sedate mind the man who brought these calamities on his country was not a mere visionary or a mere swindler he was that william patterson whose name is honourably associated with the auspicious commencement of a new era in english commerce and in english finance his plan of a national bank having been examined and approved by the most eminent statesmen who sate in the parliament house at westminster and by the most eminent merchants who walked the exchange of london had been carried into execution with signal success he thought and perhaps thought with reason that his services had been ill requited he was indeed one of the original directors of the great corporation which owed its existence to him but he was not re-elected it may easily be believed that his colleagues citizens of ample fortune and of long experience in the practical part of trade aldermen wardens of companies heads of firms well known in every burst throughout the civilized world were not well pleased to see among them in grocer's hall a foreign adventurer whose whole capital consisted in an inventive brain and a persuasive tongue some of them were probably weak enough to dislike him for being a scot some were probably mean enough to be jealous of his parts and knowledge and even persons who were not unfavourably disposed to him might have discovered before they had known him long that with all his cleverness he was deficient in common sense that his mind was full of schemes which at the first glance had a specious aspect but which on closer examination appeared to be impracticable or pernicious and that the benefit which the public had derived from one happy project formed by him would be very dearly purchased if it were taken for granted that all his other projects must be equally happy disgusted by what he considered as the ingratitude of the english he repaired to the continent in the hope that he might be able to interest the traders of the hans towns and the princes of the german empire in his plans from the continent he returned unsuccessful to london and then at length the thought that he might be more justly appreciated by his countrymen than by strangers seems to have risen in his mind 
Just at this time he fell in with Fletcher of Salton, who happened to be in England. These eccentric men soon became intimate. Each of them had monomania, and the two monomaniacs suited each other perfectly. Fletcher's whole soul was possessed by a sore, jealous, punctilious patriotism. His heart was ulcerated by the thought of the poverty, the feebleness, the political insignificance of Scotland, and of the indignities which she had suffered at the hand of her powerful and opulent neighbour. When he talked of her wrongs, his dark, meagre face took its sternest expression. His habitual frown grew blacker, and his eyes flashed more than their wonted fire. Patterson, on the other hand, firmly believed himself to have discovered the means of making any state which would follow his counsel great and prosperous in a time which, when compared with the life of an individual, could hardly be called long, and which, in the life of a nation, was but as a moment. There is not the least reason to believe that he was dishonest. Indeed, he would have found more difficulty in deceiving others had he not begun by deceiving himself. His faith to his own schemes was strong even to martyrdom, and the eloquence with which he illustrated and defended them had all the charm of sincerity and of enthusiasm. Very seldom has any blunder committed by fools, or any villainy devised by impostors, brought on any society miseries so great as the dreams of these two friends, both of them men of integrity, and both of them men of parts, were destined to bring on Scotland. End of section 8. Recording by Jen Raimundo.